It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Tuesday, May 23rd, Trey Gowdy guest-hosted Fox News Tonight. He opened the show responding to national reactions to Senator Tim Scott's 2024 presidential campaign announcement. Here is that monologue. Have you ever noticed history only seems to run one way? Yesterday should have been a day of celebration, no matter your political orthodoxy. Uh, son of the deep south, born in the birthplace of the Civil War, a man who shared, grew up sharing a house with a reminder of yesterday's pain, announced he wanted to lead the nation. You do not have to vote for or support Tim Scott to take pride in the fact that we are constantly trying to perfect this union. A country that once considered him less than a full person has a chance to make him the leader of the free world. For those of you who wonder if America is a racist country. Take a look at how people come together. All of God's people come together. Black ones and white ones and red ones and brown ones working together because love, unconditional love, binds hearts together. We are not defined by the color of our skin. We are defined by the content of our character. And if anyone tells you anything different, they're a lion. And yet we witness once again the harsh reality that you can be anything you want to be in this country, except a black Republican. Anything you want to be, except a black conservative. Tim Scott is not the only example of history only running to the left. Contrast the way Justice Clarence Thomas is treated with the way Justice Thurgood Marshall is treated. Contrast the way Dr. Ben Carson is treated with the way Cori Bush is treated. There are other examples to be sure, but the contrast between those who seek the highest office in the land is stark. Tim Scott will have to face his ancestors one day. I don't know what kind of people they were, but he will have to answer for all the choices he's made, all the decisions. He has to essentially endorse, right, white power structure, and he cannot step off that, 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 you know, that team for not even a little. I feel sorry for him that he has to go into the history books this way, but apparently that's where he wants to be. This week, the sole black Republican in the Senate sounded a stone fool when he said this. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. There are two sides to every token. So thirsty for white approval. I could go into great detail refuting each of his asinine points, but he did that for me. And moreover, a lesson I've learned, don't argue with people Harriet Tubman would have left behind. And there's nothing quite like the women of The View telling Tim Scott what it means to be a black man in America. He's one of these guys who, you know, he's like Clarence Thomas, black Republican who believes in pulling yourself by your bootstraps, rather than, to me, understanding the systemic racism that African-Americans face in this country and other minorities. He doesn't get it, neither does uh, Clarence. Right. And that's why they're Republicans. 
Contrast the way Senator Barack Obama was treated when he announced his run for the presidency with the way Tim Scott is treated. With then-Senator Obama, the media was hardly able to catch its breath, to avoid fainting, to ignore the tingle running down its collective leg long enough to ask any serious questions. With Tim Scott, the questions are all about someone else not named Tim Scott. Tim Scott is treated one way, but if you're a Democrat like Kamala Harris, you are treated differently. The night that Kamala Harris made history as the first woman, the first person of color elected vice president. The symbolism of having a mom, a mom of color up there talking, uh, you know, about these situations, I think it is important. The child of immigrants, first black, first South Asian woman is going to represent us. Remember, she is the first woman vice president. She's the first woman of color vice president. Kamala Harris is visiting there as the first woman, female vice president, the first woman of color to visit that region. Do you think anyone in the media will ask Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson whether she will vote for Tim Scott for president? They shouldn't. She won't vote for him, nor should she vote for him, because they're not politically aligned. So why would the media berate Tim Scott about why he didn't support a judge with whom he is not politically aligned? Is he supposed to support her version of history while she is not? Or does history only run in one direction? Tim Scott has been called things most of us will never be called. And even if we were called these vile things, it would not affect many of us if we are white. The words do not have a historical sting if uttered against us. He's been called a prop, a token, Uncle Tim, a sellout, a betrayal to his race. For what sin, you might ask, is he called these things? What, What offense did he commit? What crime warrants such vitriol? He defeated the sons of a popular governor and a popular United States senator to even make it to the House. He won statewide in South Carolina with overwhelming support. He has authored landmark pieces of legislation and shepherded other bills through the Congress. He has endured car stops by the police, been prevented from entering the Capitol because of the color of his skin. And yet the harshest things he endures are from those who claim to be the most progressive. Whether or not you vote for or support Tim Scott is irrelevant. He captures the pain and the progress and the potential and the promise of a nation, of a union seeking to perfect itself, and that should be celebrated. But it will not be, not by the media, not by the left. So the left can go right on calling him whatever they want to call him. You just make sure you call him a United States senator and you call him a candidate for the presidency. And maybe one day history can run both left and right. And that would be some real progress, wouldn't it be? We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest Home Services Marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. 
And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And now here's an encore episode of Q and Trey. We'll start with a question from Chuck in our state of South Carolina. He writes, why does the public foot the bill for primary elections? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question, Chuck. Uh, mm. I, actually in the past have tried to look into um, the issue of funding for not general elections in November, but primary elections. And either my research skills aren't very good or the answer is hard to find or some combination of the two. Mm. So I wound up having to ask a friend who was the head of one of the two major political parties. He was the head of uh, the national party. And here's the best. He pointed me in the right direction. Uh, here's the best I can come up with. Um, the parties nominate their candidates in a number of different ways. And the manner in which the party nominates or chooses its candidate impacts who pays for it. So his question is, why does the public foot the bill for primary elections if it is a primary election like what we have in South Carolina and other states? The states do pay for it. If it's a caucus or a state convention, and when I think state convention, I think Utah, I think they nominate or partially nominate their candidates via state convention. If it's a caucus, think Iowa caucuses, then the parties pay for it. So, the manner in which the political parties decide how to pick their candidates dictates who pays for it. Some states, just to take it one step even, even further, some states have primaries on different dates, which cost even more money. The Republicans pick their nominees and, you know, say February, the Democrats in April, that's two days worth of elections. I have tried to think of arguments for having taxpayers foot the bill for party elections. And honestly, I'm having trouble coming up with the, I mean, we want elections to be free and fair. We want them to be, you know, run in an organized way. But mm. the reality is parties can choose their nominees any way they want. They can have elections. They can have conventions. They can have caucuses. They can have seances. They can draw straws. They can pick their candidates however they want to. I do like elections. I like that, that the parties ought to have elections. I'm just not sure that the taxpayers should pay for political parties to pick their candidates. That just seems like a party function. Uh, however, I am always open to being convinced that I am wrong. So if somebody can make the case for why you Let's assume that you're a Republican, why you should be paying for the Democrat primary or why Democrats should be paying for the Republican primary. 
including runoffs. Somebody can make that argument. Um, I'd love to hear it. Well, thank you so much, Trey. And thank you, Chuck, for your question. Our next question is from Gary in Pennsylvania. He writes, I was wondering Trey's opinion on the start of a new political party and what it would take for it to be successful. Well, Gary, in the great state of Pennsylvania, uh, first, a platform. Yeah, you have to be able to tell people what you believe. You have to be able to tell them how it's different from what we currently have. Mm. I think that's number one. What do we believe and why is there a need or a space or an opening or a vacuum that this fills? Um, you need an explanation for why the other parties cannot or should not be trusted to lead. And then you need uh, viability, viable candidates um, with a belief that a vote for a third party candidate is not a wasted vote. So that's kind of a haphazard way of putting it. I'll try to put it in more structure, a platform. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? How is it different? from what we currently have. Um, and then you need to convince people of the viability, I think, I think, of your third party candidate. I think it's fair to say that Ross Perot cost George Bush the presidency. I, I think that's fair to say that if, if I'm wrong about that, hopefully somebody will correct me. Democrats for sure believe Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the presidency. And I'll bet there are folks out there right now thinking, well, who is Jill Stein? Third party candidate. I think it was a Green Party candidate or something to the left. Um, but they believe that in those states that ultimately tipped Donald Trump's way in 2016, that if you add Jill Stein and Hillary Clinton's votes together, again, I could be wrong about that. It's not like I've spent a ton of time looking in it. But it does make sense. Um, well, let me say it this way. Mm. A non-viable third party is either just a protest vote, which there's nothing wrong with that, but, but a protest vote that winds up costing the candidate you like second best in the election. So the third party has got to do more than just be like a spoiler. It, you got to do more than just hurt the side that you are actually ideologically closest to. Ross Perot was ideologically closer to George Bush, but he wound up costing Bush the presidency. Jill Stein was ideologically closer to Hillary Clinton. But for those who believe that, she wound up costing Hillary Clinton the election. So, the viability part, I think, is essential. It's got to be more than just a uh, you know, just a spoiler vote, just, you know, costing someone else the race. Um, but what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Who's your leader? Uh, is she or he viable? And if you can pull all that off, then you can start a new political party. And what vacuum or, or void are you filling? Because mm. I don't know that people want like a third political party that acts like the two you already have. I wouldn't think so. Well, thank you so much, Trey, and thank you, Gary. Our next question is from John in Indiana. He writes, is your Sunday night show live, recorded, or a combination of both? Hmm. It's predominantly live. Mm. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the time, 
I'm sitting uh, in a chair at 7 p.m. Eastern time, uh, ready to go um, now uh, to be uh, to be fully transparent and candid. There are from time to time guests who want to tape early because 7 p.m. I mean, for a lot of people, that's that's either family time or it's church time or certainly there are members of Congress who are traveling back so they can get back to work on Monday. Sometimes folks will want to tape either earlier in the day on Sunday or on Friday. You don't want to do it much before Friday because whatever you're talking about in the course of three days could get you know, stale or no longer be relevant. So we do accommodate people that have you know personal lives, work, but it is predominantly when I say predominantly, it is very, very, very predominantly live. Mm. Uh, the other exception would be holidays. So, you know, if a holiday falls on a Saturday or Sunday and the folks that work with me, including Mary Langston, may want to go you know, be with their family or friends or travel, we'll try to do it on a Friday. But even then, even then, uh, my instructions are to be dressed uh, as clean shaven as I can get <laughs> and ready to go just in case there is breaking news. So it's almost always live. The tape part is to accommodate other guests. And when you see a major holiday that falls on a weekend, my choice is either be really, really mean and make people work on a holiday or try to tape something on Friday that may still be relevant come Sunday night. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, John. Our next question is from Timothy in Ohio. He writes, why is the news about Twitter so newsworthy? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I may not be the right person to ask. Uh, newsworthy. Let's just focus on that word. Mm. I mean, the word new is in newsworthy, but... To me, it is not new, but it is relevant, which makes it newsworthy, if that makes sense. So it, it's not, I mean, Democrats showing a preference for other Democrats or Republicans protecting other Republicans is not news. It's not new. <laughs> it's happened. It's mm -hmm. uh, probably happened from the time of Cain and Abel, although I'm not sure which political party they may have been protecting. I mean, human nature is such you're going to protect your own that that there's nothing new about that. With Twitter, it was largely a group of folks with liberal political beliefs making decisions, which not surprisingly benefited Democrats. Is it relevant? Yes. I mean, for a couple of reasons, Twitter executives denied that they had a preference and telling the truth is always relevant. Credibility is always relevant. If somebody is not truthful with you about something way over here, that can impact your willingness or ability to believe them on something closer to where you are now. So credibility always matters. Some testified under oath, which adds extra layers of responsibility to tell the truth. Uh, it's also relevant because the the news media just consistently refuses to acknowledge that there is a bias, um, even though 
the rest of us on both sides of the aisle know it. So it just it's always fascinating to me to watch the news media view themselves as this, you know, group of Catholic cardinals above reproach. I I mean, no one believes that anymore, except maybe them. Um, The other part that's relevant is the entanglement between government and these companies. Um, Mm. You know, if the intelligence community or law enforcement, if they're asking Twitter or Facebook or Google to take things down, if they're asking that things be monitored, that's relevant. Um, And you should wonder what do Twitter or Facebook or Google get in exchange for doing that, if anything. So issues related to the reliability of our information, whether or not are the information that we rely upon on a daily basis or have access to, whether it's credible, that's always relevant. It's always important. Is it new? The last Republican presidential candidate endorsed by the New York Times was Dwight David Eisenhower. So I think that was before I was born. Yeah, it was. So it's, I mean, the fact that, Dem- that the media is showing a preference for Democrats, I'm sorry, it's just not, it's not new. Uh, the last time Politico uttered a discerning word or negative word about Adam Schiff or Nancy Pelosi mm. was literally the day the continent separated. So none of this is new, it, but it's still relevant. And, you know, there was this old thing we used to do in court sometimes every now and again, the judge would kind of stick his or her finger and call, call me up there and say, you know, I think you've already proven this point. Usually it's a homicide case. You've already proven the point. I mean, how many more witnesses do you have? I think the jury kind of already, you know, has a sense of the point you're trying to make. But the reality is you never know. Mm-hmm. You don't know whether a jury is going to believe it the 20th time they hear it or the second time they hear it. And so there is a temptation to want to keep proving things over and over and over again, because how much is enough? I mean, if you can convince me that all 12 members of the jury already not right now believe the defendant killed the victim beyond a reasonable doubt. OK, I'll stop. But you can't assure me of that. I view this this case the same way. This is the like one millionth example of people in power protecting their own. Mm. But I mean, do you ignore it because we're just used to it or do you highlight it again? So uh, that's a long way of saying something can be not new and still newsworthy and relevant. And that's kind of how I view this whole Twitter thing. Well, thank you so much. We'll be right back after this. Our last question is from Philip in California. He writes, he read your last book, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, and he wants to know when the next one is coming out. Oh, I I haven't even read the last one. (laughs) I I wonder how it ends. We hope you've read it. Uh, Yeah, I read it. I wrote it. Uh, The new one is coming out in January, and it uh, the first well, the first book I wrote was with Tim Scott. It was a book about the value of pursuing relationships with people who don't look or think like us. Then I wrote a book about how to how to persuade using questions. 
not not like cross-examination, not, not like Perry Mason, but just using questions to be heard and understood and make your point. And that's the book Philip was making reference to. And then, then I wrote one on making decisions. And we got January. The reason it's coming out in January. January, you know, New Year's to me is kind of the most um, maybe underappreciated holiday of all. Uh, it's a it's a clean start. It's a it's a new beginning. It's a fresh start. We all need those. And if you're heading into a new year and you want this to be the most consequential year you've had or the most successful year you've had or the most significant year you've had as you define those terms, then I think it involves our decision making. Um, when we are confronted with a choice of taking this job or taking that job, of leaving this job, of starting our own business, what to major in, whether or not to buy a new car, whether all the decisions that we make in life, do we have a paradigm or a model or a standard by which we make life's most important decisions? And it really starts, um, for me, what I, what I argued to people or what I try to convince them of in this book is to start at the end. Mm. Start with where you want to get. Um, who defines those the, the terms in your life? Success. Who who gets to tell you what is success? I was actually having this conversation with Senator Scott two nights ago. Mm. All the different people who try to define what is success in our lives. What is your definition? I mean, it's your life. How do you define it? So it's a book about it's a book about making decisions that lead you to whatever it is you want to be remembered for or your definition of success, your definition of significance. And it, well, it runs the gamut, you know, I think as most people here probably know, I left a job that I had in Congress. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't beaten. I wasn't defeated. I wasn't run out. I just left. How do you know when it's time to leave? Um, I left another job that I really, really loved to to try to start something. So how do you know when it's time to start something? And then what sometimes people consider as kind of yeah, boring or um, or a default or, you know, they're just almost like with a resignation, staying staying where you are. It is the least glamorous of the three, starting, staying, leaving. But think of the times in life when the best decision we made was was not to make a decision, not to leave, not to start something new. So the consistency, the building of experience. So it's come, it comes out in January. It actually, this book, you know, Mary Langston, you know this. I, I I really didn't think, you know, I thought my career as an author was probably over, aside from crime dramas, which I would love to write a crime drama. But mm. sitting in the parking lot of a grocery store with my wife and just a chance encounter with a stranger, I still do not know her name, just had me thinking about the importance of the decisions we make in life and how that contributes 
to what, if anything, we will be remembered for. The importance of making good decisions. So that's what the book's about. And uh, it's not about politics, although obviously you got to address you know, why you ran for office, why you left office. So it's not about politics, but it is about leaving political office. There's I mean, part of it is what to major in, what to start, when, when, when the benefits outweigh the risk, how to, how to like judge risk. You know, one, I'll give you one more example. My dad, when I was little, was a real big believer in making a list of pros and cons. Okay. That's not hard to do. I mean, I didn't do it, but it wasn't hard to do. Make a list of pros and cons. What's hard is to assign weight or value. One con may be enough to defeat all the pros. Or one pro may be persuasive and powerful enough to overcome all your doubt and make all the risk worth taking. Mm-hmm. The, the measure of a good decision maker is how to assign weight to those pros and cons. Not making a list. <laughs> the making the list is not hard. Knowing knowing how to assign weight and value to each thing on that list can be learned. So if you view life as I do, as kind of the accumulation of the decisions we have made, then we should want to be really, really, really good at making decisions. And that's what it's about. It comes out in January and doesn't matter what your politics are, doesn't, none of that matters. It, the book can help you if you simply want to live what you consider to be a significant and successful life as you define those terms. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. We will be looking forward to January and we'll also have all the information on your website and our social media. Well, I mean, you're in it, uh, which I know is usually one of the questions you you and you and Sharia always want to know, are you in it? Because that's going to no. dictate whether or not y'all buy it or not. But <laughs> you don't have to buy it. I'll, I'll get you a copy of it. OK, <laughs> well, we appreciate you've that, heard Trey. part of it. You know what it's about. I have. And you explained it perfectly. We all need help with decision making, like with questions, like with your other book. So this is definitely a good read and it's a good Christmas gift for people to get ahead of time. Yeah. Particularly if you don't like the person you're giving the gift to. Yeah. It's like a brother-in-law or something. No, it will be a great gift for people to give for Christmas. And then it comes out in January. Uh, It was definitely fun to write. And I learned a lot. Um, The one thing in life we can never do is go back um, Mm. and redo things again. So you know, I'm sure I've told you this. I know I've told my kids. Yeah, I don't have to make the same mistakes I've made. I mean, there's there's no law that says you have to also touch the hot stove. Mm-hmm. The fact that I've done it for us uh, <laughs> means that you don't have to, like, burn your hand. So mm-hmm. it's 50-something years worth of making decisions, some good, some not so good. Um, but... We got to get good at it because that's what life consists of. So mm. hopefully folks will like it. And um, 
you don't like it, then uh, email Mary Langston because I do not <laughs> I do not do well with uh, negative feedback. <laughs> they will enjoy it. And Trey, thank you for writing it. You're a very good writer. I'm sure people already know that, but it takes a lot of time to write a book. So thank you for sharing your advice with us when we get to read it in January. Uh, well, you're very kind. I'd rather write than anything. Um, I love writing. So, mm. um, but this is uh, this is not crime drama, which will probably come next if anything comes next. This is mm -hmm. more important than that. It's it's you know whenever whenever that last day comes, whether it's a retirement party, whether you're you know I just celebrated one of my childhood best friends just turned sixty, so mm. a little bit older than I am. But even then, you just sit there and think, okay. He's fabulously successful, really, really, really smart guy. But I'm, I just marvel at what people choose to say about him. What means the most to other people? Mm. In other words, what his legacy is. I mean, he's still alive. Hope he lives another 60 years. But what, what are you going to be known for? And do you want to control that? And if you want to control that, then probably ought to start now. So, well, I've summarized the whole book. Now people don't have mm -hmm. to go get it. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, thank you, Trey, for answering all those questions today. And thank you, everyone, for sending us your questions, your thoughts. And we hope you'll keep sending them. All right. Well, for everyone who's asked, Titleist Pro V1X, uh, <laughs> number doesn't matter. That's the red Titleist. I know. I know a lot of people are saying, well, what do you get somebody for Christmas that's got it all? <laughs> Titleist Pro V1X. <laughs> and if you don't want to look at the little, that's the red Titleist. <laughs> the red and number. some sunshine. No gray skies. Yeah, I, I, this this is this is about to this is about to do me <laughs> in, and I can't even look at the long range forecast because it's just more of the same. So <laughs> I'm gonna take a nap. Who was that guy that took a long nap? Well, there was a lot of people who took a long nap, some in literature and some in I'm the Bible. I'm not talking about Lindsey Graham. <laughs> I'm talking about, wasn't there like Rip Van Winkle? Didn't he sleep for That's a long right. time? That's right, yes. That's who it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I think I'll just do that and hope when I wake <laughs> up, it's spring. All right, Mary Langston, I know you got to go do a lot of good and bring a lot of joy to people and whatever it is you do on a daily basis just to make people's lives better. You too. Yeah, I'm going to watch some uh, British crime dramas on Netflix. That's what I do to make people's <laughs> lives better. You take care of yourself. I'll see you in a week or so, okay? Sounds great. Y'all have a great week. Bye-bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.